This is The Atomic Bombshell, The Minx Devlin Chronicles, a 10-part exploration of the astonishing life and tumultuous times of film noir goddess and 50s exploitation queen, Clara Minx Devlin. The woman who incinerates the screen with her evil desires. Trouble never came in a more seductive package. You know, it's funny. You're a tramp, a slaughter, a cheap, worthless strumpet, and yet I'm still madly in love with you. A Renoir portrait, as written by Balzac, but with the droll irony of Voltaire. She is, in my considered opinion, the most dangerous woman alive. I'm your host, R. Lee Proctor, here with Minx Devlin herself, her granddaughter Hazel Matthews, and film scholar Skylar DeWolf. This is our final episode of the Minx Devlin Chronicles, and it's our final chance to clear up the mysteries of her astonishing life. Okay, what would you like to know? I have been dying to ask you this. Omega, the final word in your diary. This was all you wrote after Howard Hughes asked you to dinner on New Year's Eve 1968. Could you please tell us what happened that night and what was Omega? Okay, so there I was in Las Vegas. I had been sentenced to life in a federal penitentiary, and I was all set to fake my own death to prevent that. Now, this was after your boyfriend, Latham Book Salisbury, framed you by telling the FBI you were planning to put LSD into Lake Mead, causing the citizens of three states to temporarily lose their mind. Right. Howard Hughes had been financing my legal defense. He was also paying me to perform five nights a week as Berenice von Freitenstein on his TV station. Howard had been trying to back me since 1947. He proposed marriage to me three separate times, and I knew this invitation was some kind of last-minute Hail Mary. A Hughes limo picks me up and drives me to a tract house just outside Vegas. Turns out I'm the only guest at this party. Howard has booked a 24-piece big band to play as the staff serves me prime rib with champagne. Herb Zuzman is there, and I'm not sure why, but I'm betting this involves the fate of Naked World. A half hour before midnight, the staff rolls out a woolen sack reel-to-reel tape recorder hooked up to a loudspeaker system, and Hughes' lawyer, Edsel Knox, says, The next voice you hear via transcribed recording will be Mr. Howard Hughes. Now we have that recording. Now this is uh, from the UNLV Howard Hughes archives. Good evening, Clara. I hope you enjoyed the show. Now, I'd like to reveal the reason I've asked you here tonight. There's a staffer flipping art cards on an easel. The first one shows Abe Lincoln on the $5 bill. In 1861, the state of Nevada was conceived in greed and consecrated in fraud. President Abraham Lincoln annexed Nevada in a wartime executive order so he could get his hands on Comstock Lode Silver to finance his war of aggression against the Confederacy. I've had a small army of attorneys working full-time for 11 years to prove beyond any doubt that what President Lincoln did was unlawful. 
and that Nevada is not now and has never been a legal part of the United States of America. So at this point, I'm wondering, what is this crazy bastard getting at? Now, that monstrous wrong will be put right. My people, including Mr. Knox, have laid the groundwork with our newest president, my friend Richard M. Nixon, to see that Nevada is restored to its rightful status as a federal territory. In the very near future, Nevada will be to the United States what Canada is to England, affiliated but not controlled by her. We will make our own laws and create our own government. We will enjoy the benefits of United States affiliation without being hamstrung by its regulations. The staffer flips an art card. There's a Greek symbol, Omega, as the inset of a state flag surrounded by stars. We will call this place Omega, the last letter of the Greek alphabet. Why? Because this place will be the final evolution of human freedom, the freedom to enjoy yourself as you please. Another art card flip, a picture of young, handsome Howard the Aviator, circa 1935. The government will be what's called an autocracy. Just one man will hold all the power. In the beginning, that man will be Howard Hughes, and the word I will use most often in ruling this place will be... Another art card flip revealing the giant N-O. No. No petty bureaucrats to tell us what to do and how to do it. No cover, no minimum, no limits at any casino, nightclub, or business. No speed limits anywhere. No testing of nuclear weapons to poison our soil. No income tax, no sales tax, no anything tax. No waiting period to get married or divorced. No regulation of gambling. No regulation of any act of consensual love, paid for or otherwise. No desire that can't be satisfied. No hunger that can't be slaked. No thrill that can't be enjoyed. No pleasure that can't be indulged. Wow. Howard is finally going to live his dream. Of course he isn't done yet. Omega will feature the most lavish vacation and pleasure complex anywhere in the world. A complete country within itself. So carefully planned and magnificently designed that boredom will be vanished forever. Herbie now tugs at a bedspread, revealing a colossal three-dimensional cartoon relief map of Nevada. Herb takes a baton and the words, Naked World, burst forth in tiny, flashing, pink and red lights at the top of the map. Hughes continues. For the past three years, I've been working with Mr. Herbert Zuzman to develop a prototype casino pleasure ranch where peaceful, honest people can decide for themselves what to eat, drink, read, and smoke, how and whether to dress, how to medicate and pleasure themselves, how and with whom to make love, all without fear of criminal penalties. And this is just the beginning. Herbie steps back. Edsel Knox points to the Las Vegas area, which bursts forth in neon, chase lights, and sparklers. What is now called Las Vegas will be transformed into a hedonist's paradise, a non-stop, 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week Shangri-La of luxury hotels, where every itch, no matter how forbidden, can legally be scratched. It will make the Las Vegas of today look like a Quaker prayer meeting. In the center of Las Vegas, a twinkling, glittering, neon-basted model of what was the Landmark Hotel appears. 
Now call the Hughes Citadel with an oversized marquee that says, Queen of Vegas, Minx Devlin appearing nightly with all-star review. On cue, the spotlight operator turns a spotlight of pinkish light on me. None of this means anything unless I have you, Clara. I've always wanted a true life partner. You've shown me over and over again that you are that woman. You're everything to me, Clara. I will complete construction of the Hughes Citadel as a showcase just for you and hire anyone you desire to support you. All I want in return is for you to marry me and sign a lifetime personal services contract. Any final doubt should be banished by a small gift Edsel Knox will hand you now. Knox hands me a Desert Inn envelope. Out falls a certified notarized document signed by Richard Nixon promising Howard Hughes that Clara Minx Devlin will be given a presidential pardon. My troubles are over, right? Howard breaks my reverie with one last burst over the loudspeakers. Give Mr. Knox your answer, Clara. Thanks for coming, and Happy New Year. Edsel Knox looks me in the eye. Well? I say, tell Mr. Howard Hughes that Miss Minx Devlin would absolutely love to become a wholly owned subsidiary of the Hughes Tool Company. Tell him that despite the fact that he's nutty as a Snickers bar, I'm ready to give in. He wins. Why the hell not? But... You were lying to him, right? You had no intention of giving in to Howard Hughes. No, of course not. I knew what I had to do, but I wanted Howard to have one perfect moment of happiness before we parted. Why shouldn't he be happy? I was happy. In mere moments, I'd be free of Howard, free of Herb Zuzman, free of the so-called justice system of the United States, and finally, free of Minx Devlin. She'd be dead and I'd finally just be Clara. Or whatever I'd call myself in my next incarnation, I'd be free to do, well, uh, I wasn't quite sure. Did you have any ideas? I lived for myself long enough. I'd always wondered if an ordinary person like me could do some good in the world. So Minx Devlin burns to death in the Nevada desert on January 1st, 1969. The people who helped me had driven out in three cars. They went back in two. I drove the third car back into Mexico. Mexico, okay, that's my next question. Why Mexico? Are these the lost years of the early 1950s? They are. Uh, some of this is captured in the missing journal book, too. Oh, that's great. Now, let's remind everyone of what was going on then. Your stepmother had flipped from dedicated communist to rabid red hunter and named you in front of the House Committee on Un-American Activities. You refused to mention the names of your friends and colleagues, so you were... Blacklisted. That's right. So you fled to Mexico, had your adventure with Buñuel and Castro, got saved by Hemingway, who put you on a bus back to Mexico so you could finish your Lucha Libre movie. But then you vanished. What happened? Well, that bus had just crossed from Texas into Mexico when something snapped. All that stress, all those years, my body just gave out. 
I've since described my symptoms to a number of doctors. They all say the same thing, bacterial meningitis. Only these same doctors insist I'd have died without treatment. Okay, now we've dramatized part of Minx's journal here. I must have lapsed into a coma because my very next memory, I'm in total darkness lying on a stone slab. I hear the beat of a drum and then a voice. Listen, my dream, listen now. We open our hearts to this young woman. Let your infinite grace flow through her. An image. I'm starting to see something. I'm alive. Or am I? I'm looking straight down on a very pale white woman, and it's me. We are sparks from one flame. We are the fingers on one hand. We are the drops in the tributaries of great rivers that feed the mighty ocean of being. There I am, laid out on a table. I'm at the center of a prayer circle. Seven women hold hands to complete the oval, while another beats the drum. A ninth woman stands inside the circle. This is the priestess. This perfect child has lost her soul, great one. Restore her, love her, and let her see herself as she truly is, a beloved child of the almighty God, the one eternal, boundless, unknowable source, the father, mother, creator, destroyer, ultimate oneness who is everything and nothing. All seven women lay their hands on my body. The drumbeat intensifies. We are made of light. We are made of stars, as above, so below, as within, so without. Amen. I'm suddenly aware of my heartbeat. It's beating in rhythm to that drum. What's happening? A surge of energy. I'm going to explode. I watch my body twitch. My mouth opens. My head cants upward, and I sneeze. Achoo! And suddenly I'm back in my body, eyes open, looking up at those seven women. One was on that bus sitting next to me. She must have brought me here. This tiny village in the western Sierra Madre Mountains called Las Guiabas. The priestess leans over me, smiling. She's a 90-something African-American woman who radiates light. My name is Harriet, as in Tubman. Octavia Boynton Goodacre rounds out my given name. You are greatly troubled, young woman. You have lost your soul as I lost mine to slave traders so many years ago. The good news is that you can get yours back as I got mine. You have been delivered to me so that I might assist you in that most worthy mission to make you whole. And so it begins. The most extraordinary two plus years of my life. We'll be right back for the conclusion of the Atomic Bombshell, right after we remind you for the very last time that we are 100% listener-supported. We've had so much fun conjuring this pageant that we'd like to keep doing it, creating more ripping yarns with even greater production values. You can help us by going to richlyspun.com and donating whatever you wish, plus $5, to help us leap into galvanized action on our next production. Thank you. Now, the conclusion of 
the atomic bombshell. I have nowhere else to go and nothing to do, so I hunker down and give myself to this adventure. I become Harriet's assistant, surrogate daughter, handmaid, and sidekick. Our healing circle brings four children into the world, helps two elders pass into the next realm, and retrieves the souls of three women. After a year at her side, I ask her if she'll perform the soul retrieval on me. Dearest one, your soul was stolen in the worst possible way. Wretched from you when you were a helpless child by a soul thief who also stole the soul of your mother. This demon is strong. The battle to win your soul back can kill you. But I am strong enough. Harriet smiles at me, takes my hand, and places it on the center of her chest. Feel my heart beat, child. My heart and your heart are one. I was broken by God so that I might use that pain to heal others. This is your way as well, the way of the healer. You have been broken. Healing takes time. Be patient. And so I wait. And I'm glad I did because that's how I met Jack Kerouac. Jack Kerouac. Of course, it was only a matter of time. I mean, can I just say you're amazing? <laughs> or Sal Paradise, as I know him. It's early fall of my second year. Harriet has just returned from leading the 300-mile trek to Wiracuta in search of Haikuri, a.k.a. sacred peyote. Naturally, there's a celebration. I notice a stranger. A stocky, brooding, sunburned fellow with black hair and stricken eyes. He has a notebook stuffed in his back pocket, and he stares at me. At first, shocked, then curious, then uh, fascinated. I stare back. I tingle with lust for the first time in years. I'd forgotten what that was like. Feels good. Harriet enters with a large gourd bowl filled with some kind of pea-green gruel. Everyone gets a sip. She gets to me. This is Hakura, celestial stew. Do not partake unless you want to be ravished by angels. Who could resist that? I sip, and I flip, and I trip. Wow! This stuff puts the you in euphoria. My Dionysian dance card is punched. I'm swept up in a mad frenzy of enchantment. I am in the presence of pure joy. The whole tribe thanks the gods for bringing the pilgrims home safely by dancing, chanting, drumming, sipping, eating, and drinking. The square-shouldered, sun-baked American also partakes, then asks me to step outside. Within seconds, we're both soaked to the skin. The earth is getting a big, delicious drink of water from Father Sky. He says, look, I know this sounds crazy, but back in 47, I saw this wild movie called Thrill Crazy. I nod. He laughs and then wraps his arms around me. We begin to slow dance in the downpour to the drumming inside. The rain has an erotic effect. Not that we need it, with the peyote making its magic. 
It's been years since I felt a man's pleasure reaching for me, and I revel in the thrill of his huge working man's hands wandering down my backside, grabbing me greedily until we're one lustful god beast writhing in the rain, joined at haunches, lips, and tongues. We're no longer dancing. The universe is dancing us. The celebration lodge is rimmed with smaller adobe huts, each dedicated to a particular god of nature. I take Sal by the hand and we slip into the hut of the sun god. He backs me up against an adobe wall and crushes me with delicious animal hunger. We couple in a glorious, savage, ethereal rapture. Somehow we manage to condense all the velvety sweet release I experienced with Movie Star five years earlier into one combustible spasm of vivid supernatural congress. The paroxysm I feel at the moment of climax, I honestly feel as if I'm a celestial luminary gathering up the heavens in my apron of light. No little death, just a bit more kissing, the silent nod of one sentient angel to another, and then back inside for more celebration. I sleep until the heat of the noon sun rouses me. My head is fogged, but not with that awful headachey crapulence of a hangover. No, much lighter, almost pleasant. As I blink awake, my head crackles paper. Next to my pillow is a folded page torn from his notebook, scrawled in pencil. I've saved almost nothing from my first life, but this? I lovingly preserved this in a frame under glass and hung it in my bedroom where I can see it first thing every morning. If my place ever burns down and I have time to grab one thing, this will be the thing. Here is the poem that Jack Kerouac left on Minx's pillow. It's called, the title is, Exactly What Is, Poem of a Crazy Dumb Saint on Meeting the Dharma Goddess in Mexico. Sonic, harmonic, starry being, sweet atom bomb, genius of desire. The Dharma bum Dao Hobo sees you at the peyote dance. Maya's dancing daughter, death, sorrow, lamentation, grief. I am a sorry victim of my own thought screams. Come all this way in search of the holy thusness, only to be boxed inside the laughing howl of a monkey mind lust dream. My imaginary pleasures melt the earth leaving an agitated shadow that yells, I am, into the dreamless void of nirvana. If only there were something instead of nothing, then I'd book movie you into eternity, Buddha, bliss, inheritor, my sweet, sweet dream angeled into heaven. Yours truly, Sal Paradise, epiphanies while you wait. But, Finally, after two years, Harriet tells me I'm ready for my soul retrieval. I feel as giddy as I did when I made love with Sal. Delicious, electric anticipation. 
The women of the prayer circle have illuminated what seems like a hundred votive candles. They gather around me as Harriet shows me the wool blanket covering the rough wooden table. A joyous coyote prankster figure dances, playing a pan flute and wearing a harlequin's cap and bells. To remind you that the journey might be a struggle, but the pain is in service of joy. I sit on the table. Harriet brings out the gourd and we all partake of the peyote. The prayer circle forms up around me and I am so happy. I'll soon be healed, a whole happy person. My dream is to stay here and carry on the work of Harriet as the next tribal priestess. I hear Harriet's voice as she speaks to the heavens. Holy oneness, we are gathered here to reweave your original dream cloth of peace and plenty into the endless divine tapestry of the earth's soul. And let this woman once again awaken to her rightful place as a thread in this dream cloth. Something's happening. It's working. I've left my body. I'm looking down on the room, watching the ceremony. We are gathered to summon your spirit to know your mind. Help us now. Make this child whole again. Suddenly, a feeling of nausea crashes over me as I plunge back into my body. I feel as if I've been sucker punched. Something's wrong. Very, very wrong. We are made of light. We are made of stars. As above, so below. As within, so without. Two men are in the room. What the hell is going on? One of them is coming up behind Harriet, raising his arm. He hits her with the butt of a gun. She crumples to the floor, bleeding. Oh my God, am I dreaming this? If I am, it's a dark, horrible nightmare. The two men have me now. They're wrapping me up in a trickster blanket and I'm plunged into blackness. The drug cranks up the mayhem erupting around me. A slam, and then everything is muted. I'm bouncing around like a sack of potatoes. I peek out of the blanket and I see the words Kelly Springfield on a white wall tire. I'm in the trunk of a car. I retch until my stomach is empty, and then I dry heave until I doze off in my own vomit. I've been kidnapped by Howard Hughes, and the next thing I know, I'm in real light Nevada, and Hughes is begging me to marry him, only I don't, and I'm off on my next adventure as Queen of the Passion Pits. So now we've got that background. Now let's move ahead to New Year's Day, 1969. You're in a car headed back, back to, to Guiabas. Right. Back it's to been 16 years, but I'm greeted as if I'd only been gone for a day. Nothing has changed. The prayer circle comes together so I can complete the soul retrieval ceremony. The youngest woman in the circle greets me. Turns out I'd helped bring her into the world 17 years earlier. Could you describe the ceremony itself? Um, I guess what I'm asking is how exactly does it work? Well, what I'm going to tell you doesn't come close to living the experience, you know. It's a bit like, I don't know, narrating a dream. But, okay. Nazoni, an apprentice to Harriet when I was there, is actually in charge now. So 
we sip the peyote and the drumming starts. She puts me in a kind of trance, opening a portal into the spirit realm. So I leave my body and meet my guide, who takes me to the underworld where I confront the demon. A kind of cadaverous, dead-eyed zombie who has stolen my soul along with that of my mother, I actually see my two-year-old self and my mother bound up as prisoners. So do you struggle with the demon? Well, the whole adventure takes place in a very dark cavern inhabited by bats that carry the power of death and rebirth. And a bat's cave is a gateway to other realms. Did you know that? Mm -mm. My spirit guide is the one who battles the demon, but it's a kind of life or death negotiation. The guide promises the demon that if it releases my soul, the demon will be taken from this nether world to a realm of light. The promise of liberation finally overcomes the fierce urge to enslave. Suddenly, an infinite number of bats start circling around it, binding it up in a cocoon. They lift the demon upwards, and the higher it goes, I can feel the weaker its hold on me. Finally, the demon disappears into the light, and my two-year-old self and my mother vanish. I'm free and whole and myself for the first time ever. <laughs> I wake up in the godhouse and whisper a silent prayer of thanks to Harriet. You know, she died trying to set me free. And now I am. And I can feel, I know she's there with me. We are made of light. We are made of stars. As above, so below, as within, so without. I've got a question. It's about your life after this. Now, you managed somehow to hide in plain sight for 50 years. How did you manage that? Oh my God, that was the easy part. <laughs> in 1970, it was child's play to become someone else. I went to a cemetery and found the tombstone of a child who was born the same year I was. And then I went to the Las Vegas Hall of Records and applied for a birth certificate with that name and birthday. Once I had that, I could get a social security card and a driver's license. Bingo! Clara Devlin was now Margaret Maxwell, and by God, she could prove it. Then I looked around and tried to figure out how to be useful in this new life. What was right in front of me? Once I looked, I saw it right away. Throwaway kids, hundreds of them. Las Vegas was then and actually still is full of lost, angry, desperate kids abandoned by their folks. What could I do for them? Well, 
I'd always been a pretty good artist ever since my days studying art in Maggie's library. I could hand every kid a brush, then teach them how to reach inside themselves and turn their pain into art. And I did the same thing. Just as a goof, I, I start creating these wild, magical, realist paintings under the name M. Marvel Maxwell. And to my amazement, they start selling. This was in addition to the shoebox of cash money Herb Zuzman sent me every month. I made him beneficiary of my will, and our movies were still playing on television and in drive-ins. And then later on video cassettes and DVD, I knew he'd cheat me, and he knew I knew. So we made an agreement to keep it within reason. Now I had a way to finance my little experiment, which I called the Big Mind Center for Painting Out Loud. Free art lessons, free materials, free everything. A recruitment center for a stealthy band of artistic gangsters. <laughs> artistic gangsters. Wow, I like that. So how did this work? Well, one day I got my kids together and I said to them, look, we're going to commit a series of art crimes. We, all of us here, are going to create the most beautiful work the world has ever seen. Then... We're going to sneak this work into the most god-awful hotel rooms in Vegas. Well, in the 22 years we did this, we hung 456 paintings in 59 hotels going out every month. And, and nobody ever caught you doing this? For doing what? We didn't break and enter. We paid for the rooms. We don't steal anything. We gave them something. We didn't destroy the old art. We put it in the closet. And we'd always hang our pictures carefully so the hotel could easily put the old ones back, though they never did. There's no law yet against generosity. We called it drop lifting. <laughs> drop lifting. That's awesome. That sounds like everything kids like. <laughs> it was. <laughs> and the best part was when we get a call from the hotel maids telling us that a guest had stolen one of our pictures. Let me just say as a film scholar, your life is the greatest movie I have ever seen. <laughs> so were you surprised when you heard about Skyler's book project and, and this podcast? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I was shocked. I was sure nobody cared. Oh, we do. I do. Well, who knew? But I'll tell you something, the most delightful surprise was discovering that you were involved, my dear Hazel. The biggest, maybe the only real regret of my life was losing my daughter to Maggie Kingsbury and having that daughter turn into a mean, small-minded, bigoted woman who hates me. She hated you enough to bury you without telling me, but you have to forgive her. She doesn't even know you. All she knows about you is what Maggie told her. That's just as bad, I guess. I knew when Minx Devlin burned up in the Nevada desert, that was my last chance to win her back. Now, I'd like to ask a question of my own. Sure, please. Hazel, I know how you found me thanks to Skylar DeWolf. I know how discovering my films changed your life, I guess. You were on the verge of having one kind of life, and now you got another. Are you happy with that decision? 
Has it been worth it? Oh, Clara. Oh my God, I am so glad you asked that. Before all this happened, I was sleepwalking through my life. I had no idea who I was. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And after seeing your films and then learning about your life, even before I met you, I just, I, I felt that you were showing me the way. So now when I'm faced with two choices, I just ask myself, what would Minx do? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I wonder what's the gutsy choice? And I've never gone wrong asking that question. Thank you. I feel the very same about you. Kindred spirits. Yes. That's exactly what we are. <laughs>
Dixon Cook Jr., runner-up, followed closely by Jack Kennedy and Elvis. Favorite moment? Making love with Jack Kerouac, soaked to the skin, soaring to the heavens on the wings of peyote. <laughs> Best friend? You. Whatever time I've got left in this fallen world is yours. Thank you. When I say that you're my hero, I mean that literally. You showed me the way. You showed me how to be courageous in the most unfair and outrageous situations, and it has helped me so much. Oh, that makes me think the whole thing was worth it. <laughs> Even the blacklist. <laughs> yes, especially the blacklist. So. You get all of it. What do you make of what's happened to you in your 90 plus years? Huh. Well, I'm a slow learner. <laughs> it has taken me all this time to figure out that that life is a mystery to be savored, not a problem to be fixed or a nightmare to be medicated away that the wounds we receive are gifts meant to lead us away from human reasoning toward trust in the divine, that life holds no resolutions, only epiphanies, that it's all a joke and the punchline is us, and that laughter is the sound of freedom and that the real key to happiness isn't getting what you want, Getting the fuck over yourself. My life is so simple now. I show up, I pay attention, I let go. I'm truthful, especially with myself. I say yes to every day, every hour, every moment. And I keep going no matter what. Because you just never know what's around the next corner. I mean, you know, if grass can grow through cement, I guess there's hope for a certain yours truly. The Atomic Bombshell, The Mink Stevlin Chronicles, is produced in Hollywood, California by Tales Richly Spun. This episode is directed, produced, and edited by Matthew Solari and written by Arlie Proctor. Co-producer Kevin Whitaker, artwork by Rowan Proctor. Special thanks to Caitlin Mulder, Stephen Smith, Nancy Linhan Charles, Piot Michael, and Christy Coleman. Please visit richlyspun.com slash atomic bombshell to find some illuminating books on the life of Jack Kerouac and the art of soul retrieval. Yes, it's a real thing. And now that you've heard all 10 episodes of the Mink Stevlin story, you'll want to go even deeper into her life. Discover her first crush on F. Scott Fitzgerald, her poignant encounter with Preston Sturgis, and much, much more. The memoir is entitled, The Atomic Bombshell, The Astonishing Life and Tumultuous Times of Clara Minx Devlin as Told to Hazel Matthews. This book includes the only comprehensive Minx Devlin filmography, a complete list of every movie, every co-star, and every director with extensive notes and plot summaries. Thank you so much for taking this journey with us. We hope you've enjoyed listening to The Atomic Bombshell as much as we enjoyed making it.